Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Oh, cool. I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Stephen Clapham of Behind the Balance Sheet. Remember financial statements? We're going to talk about those right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Tobias. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So I watched your Real Vision interview where you talked about uh, the dark arts of manipulating financial statements and your history as an investor in hedge funds and now running behind the balance sheet. Let's just talk very quickly. Uh, can you give folks at home uh, a background and tell them how you got to uh, to run behind the balance sheet? Sure thing. Well, I've been a, an equity analyst for an amazingly long time. You know, I, uh, I, I came into the stock market about the time of Big Bang in 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 the UK when everything was deregulated. And um, what vintage is that? Oh, I you know I'm embarrassed about how old I am. I don't like to say in the mid '80s. I just um, want to see which crashes you've seen. That's what I'm trying to figure. I, I, out. I, I, I've I've seen them all, bar 1929. <laughs> I didn't live through. I didn't live through as a practitioner. I didn't live through '73, so I, I missed that one. But. Um, I've, I lived through 1987 crash, and I hadn't been there very long. And I was telling the story the, the other day, actually. We were doing a, an interview in Radio 4 and the BBC here in, in, in London. Uh, and they said to me, this is three weeks ago. So it was actually right at the beginning of March. It was probably the 2nd of March before the stock market had started to crack. And I came on to say, look, you know, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be awful the following week i was asked back and the markets had started to wobble and you know somebody said well what are you going to do about the carnage in the stock market i said (laughs) carnage carnage this is not carnage 1987 was carnage because 1987 you came in in the morning you didn't know why the stock market was crashing and every day it every day was horrible now not as bad as we've seen recently, because these markets have been just horrendous. But we know why, right? Is you you can plot what's happening, you understand what's happening, and many stocks haven't moved that much. I was I was looking recently at a couple of stocks, and we'll get into later. But anyway, so I saw I saw the ninety day seven crash. I worked as a sell side analyst for many years. I was always did well in my sector. I did the transport sector mainly. And then in 2005, one of my clients asked me to go and join them. I'd ended up, I was at a small boutique uh, firm, a brokerage firm. And um, 
I just had a small club of clients. So I had some of the traditional names you would think of, like the Fidelities, where the analysts are highly incentivized to make money. And then I had a group of hedge funds. And basically, that was they were my main client base. And um, I did very detailed, very in-depth research. And, um, you know, some of the hedge funds, you always think of the hedge funds as being fast money. Some of the hedge funds are fast money, but some of the hedge funds are very, very detail oriented, very, very long term. And they want sell side analysts to give them a real dig deep, go down in, into the weeds type stuff. I used to be, um, I used to have one client which actually the, was taken over by SAC and they always used to call me up and they used to say, well, we've got these airline, this airline reporting the quarterly results next week. What do you think? And I always used to say, you know what, I don't know why you're calling me because I don't have a clue about the next quarter's results. You know, I can give you an informed guess, but honestly, it's an it's a guess, right? I don't know that that much. Because it's extraordinarily difficult to to forecast one quarter's numbers. It's hard enough to forecast a year, but when you get down to a quarter, it's even more difficult. When you're looking at an airline, it's it's really hard. But one of my clients, um, Martin Hughes at Tosca Fund, who's one of the Tiger Cubs. So Martin started out in the hedge fund world by working for Julian Robertson. And Martin called me up and, and said, you know, come and see me. And he offered me a job. And of course, I took it. And it was the most amazing thing because I thought to myself, what an idiot you've been sitting on the south side all this time. Because this is much more fun for two reasons. First of all, you get all the sell side input. And second of all, you're investing real money. So it was much, much more interesting because I was no longer trapped in a, a, a narrow sector. Martin did global investing and he brought me in to do the, the non-financials piece. So he was a financials analyst, a bank specialist, really. And I did the non-financial area. And um, I carried on and working for hedge funds until relatively recently, I ended up, I was at a smaller fund I joined in 2016 to try and help them grow the business. And it was disastrous. I arrived, the first day I arrived was the, the first working day in, in, in 2016. And the markets were down like 3%. And we were long going in. And honestly, we never recovered from that. And um, in, about April 2017, the founder called me in. He said, look, Steve, I'm going to give it till December. But, you know, I don't not sure we're going to continue because, of course, we we had some redemptions. The fund wasn't going well and the economics didn't stack up. And um, I thought this is going to close. I better go find another job. And I applied for I think it was 47 jobs. Do you know how many interviews I got? I, I, I do, because I've watched your Real Vision interview. <laughs> oh, sorry, I told the story in Real Vision. Is, I, I apologize. For telling, no, 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 I want to story, hear it. But, but it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, in the United States, people value experience. I can remember meeting, you know, multiple analysts who are in their 60s. In London, people don't want you if you're over 50. I mean, it's just, it's a young man's game. And... Um, I just, I just couldn't get any traction. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Because I reckon I'm a pretty good analyst, but I'm incompetent at anything in the real world. You know, I'm good at one thing. And so I, I sort of struggled with it. I thought, if I can't do a job as an analyst, what am I going to do? And um, 
somebody came up with the idea of my doing setting up a training business and that was how I started doing doing training and about 18 months ago I was asked by Stuart investors which is a 40 50 billion dollar AUM specialist in emerging markets and they do have some global funds as well and they're quite an unusual institution because they don't use sell-side research what they do is if they are interested in a subject they put a, a request for tender and they award the the job to the person that gives them the the, the best tender and they um, asked me if i would do a forensic accounting course for them and i said sure i've set up a training business so that's exactly what i want to do and um, i did it for them and i did it for one of my other clients and i thought well you know maybe other people will be interested and so i i wrote a couple of blogs about how we were going to see a multiplicity of frauds because I, I likened this, this period and this was back in the third, fourth quarter of 2018. I likened this to the late 1990s. And I think, you know, there's lots and lots of similarities. And um, I said, look, what happened in the late 1990s was people started making up the numbers, you know, it was eyeballs. Now it's total addressable market. But you know, it's all this use of non-GAAP numbers. Don't look at the real numbers. Here's here's the fictional ones I've made up. And um, I started writing these blogs and then I was very lucky and you always need luck in this business, don't you? If you're, invest if you're an investor, you need to be lucky. Indeed. And um, I was lucky, many people were unlucky because there was a company called Patisserie Valerie had a fraud. Patisserie Valerie's a chain of uh, coffee shops. And um, it was it was run, executive chairman was a very well-known investor in the UK who had been extraordinarily successful with other, with other ventures. He's a big private equity firm. And um, he lost, I don't know, 150 million pounds, you know, a couple of hundred, well, it was, last week it was a couple hundred million dollars, this week it's 170 million dollars. Um, he lost a huge amount of money in, in this fraud. And it was the most extraordinary fraud because it was obvious. The numbers were obviously made up because here was a very small cap stock selling, and it wasn't just a coffee shop, it was a cake shop. And it was making higher margins than Starbucks. And you know, it takes you about two minutes to look at that and say, that is obviously wrong. It just Why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? So, so very, very simple reason. Coffee is one of the highest margin products you can sell. It's what's in a cup of coffee. You've got some coffee beans. Look, coffee beans are not cheap, but coffee, you're paying five bucks for a takeaway coffee, right? You've got coffee beans, water, electricity, and a little bit of labor. It's one of the highest gross margin products you can, you can get. Cakes, you just need to look at the cakes. These cakes are incredibly elaborate, filled with cream, fancy piping. They go off. People consume them on the premises. So you need a waitress. You need a table. It's not possible 
that a tiny business like Patisserie Valerie could make higher margins than a business like Starbucks. It's just obvious. And it was making much higher margins than any of its UK peers. So how were they, how were they misrepresenting that? What were, what were the mechanics of what they were doing? Well, they were... <laughs> just lying. They were making, they're, 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 the numbers were completely fabricated. Right. I mean, the, the finance director was actually, um, you know, making literally making the numbers up. I mean, it was a most extraordinary case. And what was particularly extraordinary was that people assumed that um, the founder was a very successful businessman, that he would be on top of all this. And, and it, it's, it, it's still a mystery to me how he didn't spot it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't complicit because he even injected money to keep the thing going. And then when it finally closed, he paid the staff's wages for the last month out of his own pocket. Right. That's classy. So, I mean, really, yeah. I mean, you know, a nice gesture. And, um, and I mean, there's no question he was shocked about it because I saw him the week that it had gone bust. And his um, his son is at my son's school. The two kids are at the same school. And I bumped into him at, at the school gates. And I said to him, oh, look, I was terribly sorry. And, you know, well done you for for paying the staff's salary. And he looked at me and he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't get the words out of his mouth. Oh. I mean, it was, you know, so, but the, it was a, a very odd case because the numbers were totally made up. And we'll, we'll find out because there is prosecutions will happen as a result of this. When you're examining companies, so you're, uh, you're a detailed analyst, you invest both long and short. When, you, when you're looking at them, what are you looking at to, what, what are some of the quick ways that folks can identify some of these frauds or manipulations that are going on? What are you looking well, I mean, for? Well, I mean, the, there are some very simple things you can do. And the, when I started doing the research for the forensic accounting course, I went to the British Library, which has got, you know, every book in existence except uh, Joel Greenblatt's or Seth Klarman. It's Seth Klarman's the one that you can't get. Um, it's got every book in existence. And I started reading loads of specialist books on this subject. And then I started examining past frauds, because I thought the best way of, of working out how people do it is to look at the ones that, that have been uncovered. And the one thing that I found in, I think it was every single case, the margins were higher than the peer group. And the reason for that is very simple. It's much easier to fabricate the profits than it is to fabricate the revenues. Now, the frauds almost always also fabricate the revenues, but it's harder to do that, and there are more telltale signals. So they always, always fabricate the margins. They always boost the margins by more than they than they actually are. Interestingly, paying dividends usually is a good signal. And there's only one a case. A good signal that, for fraud or a good so signal I, suggesting that it's a healthy company? A good, it's usually a good signal that it's a healthy company. But I have found a couple of frauds where the founder was committing the fraud and the the way he extracted the money was by paying a huge dividend so dividends aren't a con consistently reliable indicator but the, the the first thing i look at is always the margins versus the peer group and the patisserie valerie example is a classic illustration of that 
you just need, you know, you look at the margins and look at what the peers are making. And if the margins look odd, the chances are there is something odd, right? So that's the first thing that I look at. And that is a very, very simple guide. And you can do that in, in seconds. I mean, obviously, I'm sort of a sophisticated investor. I've got professional style tools that enable me to do that, you know, just off a system. And if you're a professional investor, Bloomberg will give you that in a, in a, in a, in a nanosecond. If you're a private investor, it's more difficult. It's more, it takes a little bit more time, but it doesn't take you a lot of time to, to do that. You can do it very, very quickly. Well, one of the funny things is that's actually, that's something that, you know, Buffett style investors look for higher margins because that indicates that that's a stronger business. So that's something that you have to be particularly careful of if well, you're I, that style of investor. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that every company that's got high margins or higher margins than its peers is a fraud. Just puts you on notice. But you've, I think if you're, so it's interesting, this idea about quality. So before I came on, before I came on this, I, I was actually just recording some, some content um, for one of my courses. And it's about how do you find a high quality business? And of course, high margins are an indicator that, you're, that you've got a good business if it's not fraudulent. But I tend to look at returns more than margins. So if I'm looking for quality, my first screen is a high return. And if you're committing fraud, you generally speaking will be fabricating some of your revenues. And by fabricating some revenues on the other side of that, you'll create a fictitious asset. And generally speaking, frauds will have high returns, but they won't necessarily, will have, sorry, excuse me, will have high margins, but they won't necessarily have high returns. So if you start that exploration on the returns side, then companies that have high returns will generally be high quality. And by doing that, you won't you'll end up by ex excluding the frauds because they won't be they won't be making as high returns. But yeah, you're right. I mean, some high quality businesses have high margins, but the distinguishing characteristic will be they will also have high returns. And a fraudulent company, a company that's making the numbers up won't have. So the second thing that I look at is working capital ratios. And this is, I mean, it's slightly technical, um, you know, and I think some private investors, some retail investors find this sort of a challenging thing, but it's pretty simple. I mean, I tend to do it in quite a sophisticated way because if you're cheating, then you'll probably be quite subtle about it and it won't be as obvious. But if you look at the trade receivables to revenue and the inventory to revenue, if those numbers are high growing or high relative to peers, it's usually an indicator of trouble. It may not be an indicator of, of, of fraud, but guess what? If your customers aren't paying you, that is not good news, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're, we're doing this in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic and nobody's paying anyone. But in normal circumstances, if your customers aren't paying you, there's, there's something wrong. If you're in a good relationship with your customers, they'll pay you on time. So if your debtor days are drifting up, it's either because your customers are unhappy or because there's something questionable about your revenue 
or your customers maybe are in trouble. Maybe your customers are having financial trouble. But any of those three reasons isn't good. Is that that a revenue recognition type trick? Like they're trying to get the invoice out before the end of the quarter, knowing that it'll never be paid. They're just padding it out. And then the client just comes back and says, this is all fictitious and we're not going to pay any portion of that or some small portion of it. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, what you, you know, what you usually see is they'll fabricate or they'll send an invoice out early and then the debtor days will go up. So they send the invoice out, the goods aren't actually dispatched or they, they just managed to dispatch them at the end of the quarter. And that's, you know, typically that's what happens and the debtor days go up. The other thing to watch for, and it's just like, you know, subtlety here, but if you've got accrued income in the the working capital, that is where you've not actually sent the invoice out, but you've accrued the revenue. When you've got that and, the, and that is increasing, that's an even bigger danger signal. That's an even bigger warning sign because that tells you that the management are making the numbers up and they're and they're accelerating the revenue. And if you've got an acceleration of revenue, you're either you can you can be fabricating or you can just be pulling the revenues forward because you need to make your numbers for this quarter. And I think we've seen we've seen a huge amount of this in in recent years, because the problem is that executives are incentivized to make their targets and they've got huge amounts of money at stake. And, you know, that Charlie Munger phrase. Show me, show me the incentives. I'll show you that. Come, well, if you incentivize people with tens of millions of dollars of share options, would you be surprised if they do? If they're a little bit aggressive in their revenue recognition, of course they're going to be. There's a million, ten million reasons why they're going to be, and this is the this is the problem. And what we're going to see now in the aftermath of the virus is you're going to see a whole bunch of companies where their numbers are going to be reset. Right. Because now they've got the opportunity to say, oh, I know what we'll do. All this padding that we've been having, what we're going to do is we're going to kick that out. And that's that's exactly what we're going to see. And um, the other thing that I look at in the working capital side is inventory. And inventory days are a really, really useful signal because Often what happens is the sales look great, the profits look great, but the inventory starts to build up. The most classic example of this was Apple's last profitable quarter, which was in June 1985. The profit numbers look brilliant, but the inventory, instead of going up in the same relationship to sales, the the inventory had catapulted. And what happened, they'd been selling brilliantly and then the sales stopped. And, you know, the next quarter they made their first loss. And um, watching inventory is really, 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 really useful sign because if the inventory builds, it says your customers don't want your product. Right. You said there's a third uh, way that you identify fraud as well. And that's you're looking at uh, the cash flow relative to the uh, earnings. Yeah, I mean... If you're generating cash, your numbers aren't made up unless you fabricated the cash. So in the case of Patisserie Valerie, actually, they even fabricated the cash and the, the 
finance director had managed to achieve two loans from two different banks, which weren't on the balance sheet. Oh, they just which, weren't recorded. Which weren't recorded. I mean, I, you know, in a way, I've got a slightly grudging admiration for him because he managed to get a £10 million loan from HSBC. And um, when I did my first presentation in Patisserie Valerie, I explained to the audience, this, uh, I did this inve investor conference in London. There were probably 300 people in the audience. And I, I asked the people to, who owned Patisserie Valerie to put their hand up. And there was like 10% of a, more put their hands up, which means that 20% owned this stock. And well, somebody asked me the question, well, you know, how did he manage to get this loan from HSBC? And I said, well, it's a complete mystery to me because at the time I was the director of a UK subsidiary of a Hong Kong business. And um, we had a bank account with HSBC in Hong Kong. And we needed to open a UK bank account. And HSBC in the UK, their money laundering rules are so strict that we couldn't open the account. It was taking us months. And this guy, so this guy, obviously, he was skilled, right? But the amazing thing about that was HSBC had lent this guy ten million pounds, and the loan wasn't in the balance sheet. You know, well, what were they doing? You know, you would assume if you're a bank and you've lent money to a company. You assume that they'd open the report and accounts and check that the loan is there. You, you think that would be like one of the first things that they would do. Who knows? How did the private but, equity guy miss that? Well, I don't know. I, I, That's pretty I mean, material. Well, I think what had happened was that, that when, they did, when the, the finance director had taken the loan out, He'd fabricated the other signatures. Because obviously, you need to have more than one signature. So I imagine that he must have fabricated the other signatures. I mean, so the directors a, were just totally unaware that this had occurred at all. He just didn't, at any stage, make it clear to the board that they'd gone and they'd got a ten million dollar loan. Well, apparently, uh, uh, I mean, this is what we have to believe, right? Because, uh, I mean, that's the only explanation that makes any sense. I mean, even that barely makes sense. But um, with exception of companies, so, I mean, it's, it's, I was going to say it's very unusual. It's not that unusual for companies to fabricate their cash balances. You, you see it often in Asia. You know, there's lots of stories about the Chinese, um, you know, the backdoor flotations in the United States where they fabricated the cash and they colluded with the, with the local bank manager. So they paid the local bank manager to lie and, and do that sort of thing. Honestly, it doesn't matter how good an analyst you are. If they're doing that sort of thing, it's extremely difficult to spot, right? If the, the cash in the balance sheet isn't accurate, you're, you'll, you'll struggle. But um, the, the, generally speaking, for, most, for the vast majority of companies, even the vast majority of frauds find it difficult to fabricate the cash. So if you look at the cash generation and you look at the cash generation relative to the earnings, that's a super guide to making sure that you've got a proper business. And it doesn't matter, you know, I'm talking about frauds, but this is equally a, a measure of, of good companies because companies that are going to make you money as an investor are companies that generate lots of cash. And if they don't generate lots of cash, you've got to understand why. And it, it, it fascinates me how few people understand the cash flow statement. 
I, I couldn't agree more. Do, do, are you familiar with the Parmalat fraud at all? Um, only in a very scant detail. I haven't really, haven't really studied it. It was another one where there was a lot of fabrication right. and obfuscation they just going fabricated on. Fabricated some money in a bank account, and that bank account was the bank was complicit with in it. As is my yeah. understanding. Let's yeah, talk, I know exactly. Let's talk about uh, NEPA margins versus corporate earnings because this is an. I had this argument quite a lot about five years ago or so, and I was just interested to hear you raise it on your interview. So, could you? What what are, what are the difference between the two, and what what do you think it indicates? Well, you know what happened in the nineteen nineties was exactly the same pattern as we're experiencing now. So the NEPA margins have been going down for, I don't know, 15 quarters. Uh, I, I, I don't, don't, I mean, many, many quarters. And the S&P 500 margins have been going straight up. What's, so what's the got, difference between the two? Could perhaps just give us a definition so of NEPA. So um, I'm not, not sure that I even got a definition of NEPA. NEPA are the economic margins. And the, I think the, the source data is the... Fi- the there are U.S. margins as filed with the Inland Revenue Service, is my understanding. So they include not just the S&P 500, but they also include small and medium enterprises. So there's there, there's some good reasons why the NEPA would be different from the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 includes some big tech stocks that are making lots and lots of money. The NEPA margins include them, but they're a much smaller proportion. Small and medium-sized enterprises, many of them are getting have been getting squeezed in the last ten years, and therefore they're 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 making declining profitability rather than increasing profitability. But the 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 difference between these two sets of data is as wide as it has ever been. And the interesting thing about this is that they often they often part ways, but they always close together. Every cycle has been the same. So you see a segregation and then a a, a meeting again. And I've got no reason to imagine that this will be any different. They might not meet exactly. There might be a small gap. One of the reasons is the the recent changes in the US corporate tax um, structure and corporate tax rates and the encouragement to invest by having 100% allowances. But the the fact is the S&P 500 margins have been going straight up and the, the NEPA margins have been going straight down. And what I take this to mean, and it's only my interpretation, I can't prove it, but my belief is that what's happening is the S&P 500 are lying and the people don't lie to the tax man. That's, you know, I... There's a guy, Dougie Ferrens, an old friend of mine, and he used to run Scottish Amicable, which was one of the largest investors in the UK. And he used to be the CIO. And he used to say to me, Steve, there's two people that know what a company really makes. One's the finance director, the other's the tax man. He was always very suspicious of low tax rates. Now, there are legitimate reasons that tax rates have come down. You know, you look at a company like Microsoft, which is financially incredibly clean, its tax rates have fallen very dramatically in the last 20, 25 years. And that's a function that corporate tax rates have fallen and because there's more loopholes that companies are exploiting. But the NEPA margins and the S&P 500 margins, I will bet you they converge again in the next five years. I'm with you on that bet. I'm not taking the other (laughs) side of that bet. (laughs) And, 
you know what's going to happen. It's not the the it's not the Nipa margin is going to go up, right? It's the S and P five hundred margin is going to go down, and it's just a, it's just another indicator that companies are cheating. And this is why people should they need to be so much more familiar with their accounting than than they are. Let's uh, let's talk about an individual name or a few. Uh, are you familiar with Tesla? Oh, <laughs> don't. I've got I. People are so, so upset about Tesla. I, you know, I don't really have a view on the stock. And I do think some of their accounting is very questionable. And I've had, I've had a number of debates. Bailey Gifford, just so full disclosure here, Bailey Gifford is one of my largest clients. Bailey Gifford are fantastic, gifted investors. And I love going up to Edinburgh and doing the courses there. Because I always get engaged in great debates, and they're they're they were very funny. I did the first course, and I went up and I said, and you know, Netflix appears in my course because Netflix is a dirty in the accounting stuff. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I'm going to talk about Netflix. And they go, Don't be sorry, we're interested. And the the reason I think that one of the reasons that they're so successful is they've got very open minds, strong views, loosely held. They're very interested in the counter argument. And it's so important for investors to, to be able to do that. Not all professional investors have got that open a mind. And um, we've had a number of debates about Tesla. We're working on the Tesla accounts actually at the moment. And we're going to we're thinking about doing a webinar series on, you know, going through the Tesla accounts. And here's the thing. The trouble with Tesla is it's incredibly complicated. And it's very difficult to know what the numbers should be because you don't have a steady state. You know, it's been growing very quickly. So you can't say, oh, this ratio has moved and that's an indicator of a problem because that ratio could have moved for any one of five reasons because they've opened a plant in China. They've increased the volumes of the Model 3. There's, you know, numerous, numerous reasons why the, the numbers change. So Tesla's quite a difficult one, but it's got, oh, I mean, some of the policies are weird. So I got pulled up for talking about their trade-in policies. Now, in the UK, to my knowledge, they don't take trade-ins. I understand by the barrage of abuse that I received on Twitter that in America, they'll take a trade-in. Thank you. I'm now better informed. The problem, <laughs> the problem is, so I had one guy in particular, I mean, just really giving me such a hard time, such a hard time on Twitter about the trade-ins. So I said to him, thanks very much for pointing this out. I hadn't realized that they took trade-ins in the United States. Can you then explain the trade-in accounting policy? Because it's written in English, but I don't understand it. And he couldn't explain it. And the... When you read accounting policies, in my experience, good companies have simple accounting policies which clearly explain what they're doing in the accounts. Companies which cheat don't. And so the more complicated the language, the more difficult it is to understand, the more likely it is that they'll be cheating. Not, you know, it's not an automatic one for one correlation, causation. But what I found is companies that are cheating tend to throw up a 
fog around what they're doing to make it more impenetrable. And so as soon as I read a set of accounting policies that are difficult to follow, my my hackles get up. I, you know, I then think, ah, here's a potential short. And Tesla, that fits that. I mean, one of the things in about Tesla, one of the things that makes Tesla very difficult is that rapid growth often consumes cash flow. And so that's one explanation for the lack of cash flow. But another one is just that the, the revenue seem to be, the revenue numbers seem to be very impressive for the most part, although the last year was like 2% growth. But the cash flows have not followed the revenue numbers. They've been flat or negative for the most part. Well, I mean, in a way, you you know, if it, if it was a, perfectly legitimate and, and, and beautifully accounting, everything super clean, it might not generate cash, right? Because there's all sorts of reasons why it might not be generating cash. You know, it's going through a massive amount of, of reprofiling of its production facilities and the way it produces the product. It's opening loads of new factories. These companies that are changing very, very rapidly can be quite, quite difficult. A good, um, a good example of this is Aston Martin in the UK, where they've been they've not been generating any cash, and they've been doing a lot of cost capitalization. And you know, in the case of Aston Martin, it's obvious that the that the company came to the stock market at the wrong price. Now, you could argue about the Tesla stock price, and we'd you know we'd be here until you know it's bedtime, right? <laughs> <laughs> and look, you know, there are arguments for and arguments against. I mean, the arguments against, I think, are more powerful and more plausible at this at the level it's been been at recently. But you, you know, you can make the arguments in, in both ways. But I think that the Tesla accounting is very opaque, very difficult to understand. The cash flow may or may not be. Um, as you would expect, it's it's just very very complicated. And if they were cheating, would anybody be surprised? When you're when you're looking at uh, different industries and sectors, do you find that there are any that tend to cheat a little more than others, or any that are more suspicious than others? <laughs> Everybody asks this question. Are there you know particular sectors that are prevalent to this? I don't I don't think so. I mean. I found frauds in every sector you can imagine. Now, obviously, look, if you're in mining or oil, it's easier to commit a fraud because, you know, you, you find you find gold and we found gold and, you know, there's lots of it. And those are, you know, things that you can't substantiate with the financial data because the gold hasn't yet been shipped. So you get those sorts of frauds in those sorts of sectors. But when you're talking about financial fraud, when you're talking about earnings management, I believe earnings management is all pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's particularly pervasive in the United States because of the compensation awards. But there's I don't think there's a sector that's immune. And I think you see you see it in lots and lots of sectors. Maybe, you, you know, something like you, a regulated utility, there's less incentive to do so. But everywhere else, I would say that, that you, you're seeing a lot of uh, manipulation. Do you have any uh, classic examples of frauds? We've discussed we've discussed Parmalat briefly, but what about Enron? Do you are you familiar with Enron? 
Yeah, I'm familiar with Enron. I mean, it's really um, from another era because, you know, it's one of these ones where there, I think if I remember correctly, Enron was on 60 times earnings when it was making a 6% return in capital. And Enron's a classic case of look at the returns because if it's a good business, it will make high returns. And Enron wasn't making high returns because it was fabricating everything. So it had all these assets on, on the balance sheet. And um, I mean, the ones that, um, you know, I, I've, look, well, I've looked at a number of ones. The, the, the one that we've been looking at most closely recently is Patisserie Valerie, which we already mentioned. Also in the UK, we, we've got a case study on a business called Polypec which went bust in the early 1990s. And um, it was another one of these ones where they were fabricating the cash. And, but it was very obvious, you know, here was a company that was reporting 160 million of profit. And it was reporting interest income of, I think it was 70 million and interest cost of 55. But it had massive debt. So, you know, it was reporting net interest income, yet it had significant long-term and short-term debt on the balance sheet and not much cash. And, you, you know, you don't need to be clever to spot these things. Just some very simple, basic checks. Just ask yourself, do these things make sense? You know... Enron seemed to me the classic case of the narrative leading the story and people ignoring the numbers. And I have this um, slide in my in my courses that says, and it's a slide that's just full of numbers, and it says numbers over narrative. And we have this great, um, great couple of slides that we talk about, which is I've got a picture of David Einhorn. And I don't know if you read David Einhorn's book. He wrote the book yeah, about the insurance scam. And I emailed him and I said, I, I, yeah, he's not, a, I'm not friendly with him or anything else, but I've had some email dialogue with him about ideas and stuff. And he's a very nice chap, it seems, of, you know, if you're, if you, he's, he seems to be approachable anyway. So um, I, um, I emailed him and said, David, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the book, but what I didn't understand was you're David Einhorn, you're saying this company's making up the numbers. It's obvious they're making up the numbers. Why did the South side not listen to you? And he, I was quite surprised that he, but he emailed me back a couple of weeks later and he said, um, people like stories. People don't pay attention to the numbers. And there's all sorts of evidence of this. There is a, a study done by two academics at, at University of Notre Dame, which found that the, the reporting accounts are only opened, I think it's 28.4 times on average on the day of filing and the following day. And you think, well, that's just impossible, right? <laughs> now, now, it may be that, you know, people open them via Bloomberg. I mean, that's perfectly possible. But there's only 300,000 Bloomberg screens in the world. And they're not all owned by equity investors. And there's a lot of equity investors in the world. And there was a great interview done by the, the CFO of GE. I think the interview was done in 2015. And um, he said that the, the, in 2013, the GE annual report was downloaded, I can't remember, it's like 1,300 times. And in 2014, it was downloaded 3,400 times from their website. 
Well, GE's got millions of shareholders. I mean, admittedly, you could download the GE web accounts from the website and you'd be none the wiser because the accounts <laughs> were nonsense. But, you know, it just amazes me. How can people own an investment and not have opened their accounts? It's just bizarre. I mean, I, don't, I just don't begin to understand that. John Kenneth Galbraith used to call uh, the difference between the reported numbers and what was actually happening underneath as the bezel. The bezel, and, yeah. And the yeah. bezel was often only revealed in the crash or after the crash. And so I just wonder this time, uh, given that we're having a coronavirus um, slowdown or it's going to be blamed on coronavirus, I have a, I have a theory that you know the, uh, the yield curve inversion occurred here in June or July last year. And there are many, many indicators that the world was going into a slowdown. And I think coronavirus is sort of the, the catalyst or the trigger rather than the underlying root cause. But I fully expect that they're going to use this quarter to big bath a whole lot of accounting. And so I think there'll be some horrible accounts that come through the other side. But are there any companies that you might be looking at that you think uh, might, might show their true colors in the next quarter or so? Well, it's difficult to, to single a few companies out because I think they're all at it. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> the, the companies that don't, I think, will be exceptional. I, I th no, I, I mean, you're la you're laughing, but let me tell you, I went to probably twenty analyst meetings at the time that I was building the forensic accounting course, sort of the second and third quarter of 2018. 20 analyst meetings. Every single meeting I went to, I came away with an example of accounting chicanery that I used in the course. There wasn't a single meeting that I went to that I could not find something that they, that they were doing wrong. Now, I've been doing this for a long time. And admittedly, you know, I normally I go to an analyst meetings, I'm thinking about the investment, but I'm an accounts-based analyst. And if companies are cheating, you know, I would always go, oh, that's that looks a bit naughty. I don't recall a period. And I've been, look, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't recall a period ever when companies were cheating as much. So if you can find me a company that comes out the other side of this horrible situation without adjusting its numbers, I'll be very surprised. I'm sure there's one. I'm sure there's a dozen. But Honestly, 90%, more than 90% of the companies will be using this as an opportunity to rebase their earnings. So, you know, I'm, I've been getting a lot of very bullish comments. Um, we're, we're doing this the day after Bill Ackman revealed that he made 100 times his $27 million investment, which is absolutely heroic, and that he's super bullish. I think it was last night or two nights ago, Whitney Tilson called the bottom of the stock market. Whitney, I salute you. But the fact is, right, that none of us know what's going to happen on the other side of this virus. But the one thing that you can be absolutely confident of is there is going to be a cash flow squeeze across the world. I've got a very small business and most of my clients are required to pay in advance. I have a few clients that for various reasons I hadn't invoiced. Not one of them has paid me. 
right? Now, it may be it may be that they're all locked away at home and they can't get to their bank. I mean, you know, it's possible, <laughs> unlikely, possible. I tell a lie, actually. There is one client that's paid me. It's very nice. The 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 daughter of a or the daughter member of a very wealthy family who's working in a family office, and I'm helping train her one-to-one in how to look at their accounts and how to analyze businesses. And she's paid me, but you know, she's a nice person and they've got a lot of money. This is, you know, a microcosm of what's going to happen. Nobody's going to be paying each other and working capital, I think has been very stretched. I mean, I haven't done a very detailed analysis of this, but I've looked at a number of industrial companies where in the last 15 years, they've massively improved their collection cycle. So collection cycle for a company like Electrolux has gone from, I don't know, 70 days probably to zero. A huge improvement. Maybe it was 50 days and it's gone to zero. So you think, wow, isn't that fantastic? The company's become really much more efficient in its use of capital. It's become much more efficient, but not by reducing its inventory. Its inventory days, its debtor days are flat over the last 15 years. What it's done is it stopped paying people. So it's now, it's now got 100 days of payables. Well, guess what's going to happen? Those days are going to shrink. They're going to have to shrink because all its supply chain was going to be desperate for money. And so what you're going to see is many of your listeners will not even know what a rights issue is. And, you know, when I, when I started in the stock market, you had to know how to work out the theoretical X rights price. Well, I can't remember. I mean, honestly, I, I can't remember the last time I had to work one out. I'd, I'd have to go and look up what the formula was. It's so long since I since I did it. Well, guess what? We're going to be we're going to be finding out how to do that very soon because there's going to be a, there's going to be a big change as a result of all of this. And the other big change will be you'll see a load of accounting adjustments. Uh, last question, Stephen. Uh, how do you feel about non-GAAP earnings? I'm torn as to whether to, to hate them or love them. I love them because they're going to keep me in business. But I hate them because they are classic. I use the In the courses, I use the example of the, the three-cup trick. You know where you've got one ball and three cups and you've got three to watch the... Three card Monty, it's a variation of that, right? Where you've got to follow the queen. Yeah, follow the queen. It's exactly the same thing. And that's non-gap. Let's follow the queen. It's exactly the same thing. And, um, you know, what you must, must, must do is don't ignore... I mean, I'm not saying ignore the non-gap numbers. Look at the non-gap numbers. But you're very lucky in the United States that companies are required to give a reconciliation go through that reconciliation and throw out anything which doesn't look right. My favorite bugbear is restructuring costs. Companies that have restructuring costs year after year after year. GKN in the UK, I haven't added it up, but I suspect their restructuring costs were as much as their EBIT. Certainly they were as much as their earnings. I mean, over a 15 year period, every single year they had huge restructuring provisions and you see i mean this is i've got loads and loads of examples of it that is one thing that you want to be very wary of when you're looking at the non-gap numbers but there are i mean there are lots of adjustments and most of them aren't right 
Stephen, that's coming up on time. If folks want to get in contact with you, uh, how do they go about doing that? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Clapham, C-L-A-P-H-A-M. You can come to my website, behindthebalancesheet.com. You can see we've got a whole bunch of online courses there. And please do go there. And we've got two things which your listeners should enjoy. One is we've got a library. So if you click on free tools, you can get access. We've got a library, which is a huge amount of free stuff, all investment related, loads and loads of investment letters, loads of interesting stuff. Another thing we're doing right now, because everybody's stuck at home, we've got this program, we call it 3030. So if you go behindthebalancesheet.com slash 3030, you can sign up for our new program. So this idea came about, I'm trying to reinvest some of my commuting time. And I've started this couch to 5K, which we've got in the UK, which is the thing where you learn to run, right? I'm not a runner. But hopefully by the end of this, I'll be running 5K. And the idea of this program is that you sign up and every day we give you something to read, something to watch, something to listen to, a podcast. I'm sure some of your podcasts will be recommended or something to do. We'll do some exercises. So every day for 30 days, we'll give you a little thing to keep you busy. You'll spend 30 minutes or less. And hopefully at the end of it, you'll have learned something and you'll be a better investor. That sounds like a great initiative. Uh, Stephen Clapham, behind the balance sheet, thank you very much. Thank you, Salute.